I like that music. I'm going to miss that when it's over. <laughs> Hi, good morning, church. So we are finishing the Sermon on the Mount series today. And I want to, I want to lead you into some scripture meditation this morning. These three words that are on the screen, love your enemies. Now, in Christian meditation, Christians need to learn eventually what meditation is and isn't. We're not going to sit Indian style and do yoga this morning. All right. Uh, but one scripture meditation method is to focus on each word and think of all the definitions and, and attachments that we have to that word. So let's just do that real quick together. Love your enemies. Okay, so love. Let's think about that. Think of all that love means to you. Now, the Bible uses two main Greek words for love. Phileo, which is the brotherly love, the affectionate love, the love of the emotion, our feelings. And then agape love, which is the love of the will of choice, to be selfless, to sacrifice and serve. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. Love. Think of all the things love means to you. Now, love your enemies. Your. We're not talking about enemies out there. Not abstract enemies, not someone else's enemies, yours. Now the word enemies. Who are your enemies? Go ahead and picture them. I know if you were having a good day, I just ruined it for you. Who are your enemies? Go ahead and picture them. They may be someone who shoot at you. Um, some may go to a rival school. Some may be waiting for you to return to work so they can make your life miserable again. Some may have different beliefs than you or even think that your beliefs are evil. Some may be sitting next to you right now, but we don't need to admit that. Now, think about your enemies. Now that I have taken you there, God's word is going to make it better today. We're going to think about our enemies a lot today as we go on. But before we do, that's where Jesus takes us today. But before we go there, let's back up and see where we've been over the last five weeks in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where we have been. If you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, that would be great. The words will be on the screen. There's sermon notes in your bulletin as well. So where have we been and where has Jesus led us to this point? Well, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has gathered in front of multitudes of people, several hundreds of people. His disciples are closest to him. And also in the crowd are the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders that are antagonistic to him and wrong about so many things about the Old Testament law. So he confronts the religious leaders' beliefs of his day and he's exposing their legalism, their attitude that righteousness comes from an external set of conduct, an external religious code rather than in the heart. And as we have worked through these five weeks of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen a, par a series of paragraphs where Jesus begins, you've heard it was said, but I say. And then he corrects the misinterpretation and speaks how God is looking to get our hearts, our whole self, not an external code of conduct. And we're going to see one more time today. In fact, this is the sixth and final time that Jesus uses these words in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, we're going to see today what he's been leading up to. It's been a crescendo of intensity up to this point. Every step along the way has applied to our lives and every step has been challenging our thinking and transforming us and turning us upside down and turning the world upside down. It's been a great series, hasn't it? It's been a really special season. 
But it's been leading to where we come today. Jesus, to this point, has given five examples of how a happy heart of righteousness views anger, lust, divorce, honesty, and what to do with our own personal rights. And Jesus now moves to the highest place where law meets love. Let's go there right now. Example number six. A happy heart of righteousness. Jesus on loving your enemies. Like Jesus has with each example, he begins with the Old Testament principle. So let's look at the text. The Old Testament principle is where he begins. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now right off the bat, I want you to notice some really key words. He says, You have heard that it was said. See, if the thing that he's quoting was actually in the Old Testament law, he would have said, and he says in other places, it was written, or it is written. Okay, nowhere is this statement that we just read actually written in the Old Testament. That's really important. And you see that because he says, you've heard that it was said. When he addresses the Pharisees' additions and distortions to the Old Testament law, this is what he says. You have heard it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, that had become a popular saying. It's a lot like a well-known bumper sticker or marketing slogan today where everybody knows it and just kind of lives by it whether it's right or wrong. And that's what he's bringing up today. Nowhere in the Old Testament law did it teach this to hate one's enemies. Let's look at what the law actually said. Here's one place, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Consider these words right from the law of the Old Testament. If you meet your enemies, ox or donkey, or his donkey is going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. All right, there's the spirit, the heart, what the law actually says. So Jesus is going to demonstrate once again how the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law for their own purposes. And you know what? We'll see how we do the same thing. But that's next. The Pharisees' misinterpretation. Let's look at that. Now remember, okay, remember this. Old Testament law, good. Misinterpretations, bad. Got that. The Pharisees taught that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's to love those that are near and dear to you, but that your enemies should be hated. Now they're quoting Leviticus 19.18. Let's look at that verse and see what it actually says. Again, the law says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you, should, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And any, anytime you see that in scripture, I am the Lord, that's God's biggest exclamation point he can put on something. Loving your neighbors has always been very important to the heart of God. That's the Old Testament law. There's nothing there about hate at all. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which raises the question, who is my neighbor? And you remember that later in Jesus' ministry, a Pharisee asked him that very question. Well, who then is my neighbor? Kind of challenging him on that. And remember Jesus' answer gave us one of the most well-known parables at all. The parable of the good Samaritan. Samaritan. One of the most hated groups of people by the Jews is your neighbor. 
all humans are made in the image of God. And therefore, all humans are our neighbor. How many humans are our neighbor? And you have said it. That's the spirit of the law. That's the heart of God. All humans are our neighbor. But it is natural for us to want to hate people. All right, let's admit that. It's natural for us to want to be angry, to hate people. And the Jewish leaders were skilled at explaining away the heart of the law to justify their own behavior. And so to give license to the desire to hate people, they limited the word, the definition of the word neighbor. Pretty good tactic, right? Of course they did. Because if we can define, if we can change our own definitions of words, then we can do and justify whatever we want to do. Definition is everything. And so that's what they did, and we still do that today. So what history tells us happened was that over the years, when they publicly proclaimed this portion of the law in Leviticus, they changed it. They changed the words into this, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And that's what was actually recorded and publicly proclaimed. And they did. That's what their leaders were leading the people to. And they were well known in Jesus' day for hating their neighbors, their, en their enemies. The Roman historian that lived right around the time of Christ, a little bit after, described the Jews, here's how he described the Jews, as those with hatred to the human race. How many times are Christians rightly described the same way? With hatred toward the human race. Do we really want to be known as that? No, we don't. No, we don't. And you know that breaks Jesus' heart more than anybody else? That his people would be called that or known as that? And so he confronts that right here. And he gives, and we'll look at the true interpretation by Christ, which he gives in verses 44 through 47. 44 is his initial response. But I say to you, you have heard it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Once again, Jesus is giving the true interpretation of the law, the true heart of the law. And once again, it is on the entirely opposite end of the spectrum of the common misinterpretation of the day. Once again, Christians are called to a set of new relational standards. That's following Jesus. Turning the world upside down. And our hearts. So before we go any further, let's openly and honestly consider this question in our own hearts. Who are my enemies? And I'm going to read you a definition and then several other characteristics. And I just want you to think, who are my enemies? All right, so let's get this going. First from dictionary.com, there's a good definition of an enemy. An enemy is a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or unfriendly opponent. It's a pretty good definition. Here's some other thoughts of who our enemies can be. An enemy can be somebody who hates us, seeks to harm us, or causes trouble. An enemy can be someone who has wronged us, somebody on the opposing side, a rival for another's affections, 
people who have wronged us or hurt us or disrespected us. Or people that hated us and the natural thing to do is hate them back. It's the natural thing. By human standards, there seem to be some people who are just not worthy of our love. They don't deserve it and so they don't get it. That's the way the natural world works. So consider, who are your enemies that you naturally have a hard time loving? There is a spectrum of enemies as I've considered this, as I've answered this question in my own life. And I see this spectrum of enemies. You know, a spectrum has two extremes. So one would be the kind of the minor enemies, and one would be the, the major, absolutely devastating enemies. So let's consider that spectrum and everyone, everyone on it. There are some basic enemies that we deal with every day, uh, almost every day. Uh, those could be, I'm on email a lot. I don't know if, if you are, many of you are. Uh, and it doesn't seem like a week goes by hardly that some email that I get makes my heart pound a little. You know what I mean? So I, I get disrespected or people ignore my question or, you know, um, wanted to confront me somehow through email. And, uh, and you've been there, okay? So it makes your heart pound a little bit. What's another one? Another one could be someone who disagrees with you about a point of doctrine or a belief or disagrees with you about what Christians should do on Halloween. Let's be seasonal. You mean my view on that is wrong? See, the thing about our beliefs is that they're tied to our identity. So any disagreement about beliefs seems like an attack against us, a disapproval towards us. And so we do get defensive and angry. And in that moment, that moment that you read that email or have that disagreement, they seem to be an enemy to your flesh. I call these micro-enemies. Right, we're living in the world of microaggressions. We get triggered, right? It's pretty, ap- it's pretty applicable. We do. And, and I don't want to laugh or discard those because that's our real lives. That's where we live from in a day-to-day. And this really tests our heart. And we can apply the words of Jesus and be followers of Jesus many times a day or many times a week in this area. But there are bigger enemies too. There are bullies at school. Or the friend that betrayed you. Or the person at work who lies about you or treats you unfairly. There are even bigger enemies. Like the family member who is abusive to you. Or the spouse that has betrayed you. Go to this uncomfortable territory with me, all right? We have enemies. And Jesus is calling us to do something to follow him. And follow him and his character. Now, on this side of the spectrum, I've seen this battle at its hardest among some of our military brothers and sisters. This church is in a military community, in a military context. And Jesus calls us to be light to this military con- context. And one of our brothers has described this over the years to me, uh, this very struggle. His, he's Matt Cameron. Many people know Matt. Uh, Matt is an Awana TNT leader. Can I get some cheers? Yeah. Awana always gets some cheers. Good job. Uh, he and his wife, Matt and his wife, Allie, are, are fantastic small group leaders. And Allie serves on two of our church's missions teams, and she's on the Perspectives course team. Uh, 
Matt is a, in the Army. He's a Staff Sergeant in First Special, For, First Special Forces Group. It's an intense job. Uh, and Matt has shared with me over the years about his struggle with loving his enemies in this very text of Jesus this morning. And I asked him to, to share his thoughts and write a letter to the congregation, and he did. So I'm going to read Matt's letter about his journey with this very thing. Here's what Matt writes. My Christian faith while serving in the military has truly been tested over the last 12 years. With one tour to Iraq and two to Afghanistan, I've seen and experienced a lot of ups and a lot more downs than I care to admit or even care to talk about. For the longest time, I have dealt with a very intense inward battle of hating my enemy instead of loving them like Jesus calls us to. How could I love an enemy when they are killing my fellow soldiers and friends? To add to this, my wife has developed a huge heart for the Muslim community and has started and helped in numerous outreaches that support and love on a culture that I have learned to despise. This tension has caused some conflict within our household because I did not understand the why. There are two questions that lingered through all of this. Why do these people do the things they do? And how do I support my wife who is called to serve and love them while I fight them? The answer didn't come until my deployment to Afghanistan last year. During this deployment on one of my last missions, I was standing next to a young soldier who was out with our SF team on his very first mission when an incoming 81-millimeter mortar struck him out of nowhere. The next thing I remember was an extremely loud ringing in my ears and not being able to breathe or see because of the smoke and dust from the explosion. After a few seconds, the reality quickly set in and I immediately began to do what I was trained for. I assessed myself for injuries and then grabbed PFC Kirkpatrick and dragged him out of the impact zone to the medic for care. As I stood there, I watched the life slowly slip from his eyes as the medic worked tirelessly to keep him alive. But due to the seriousness of his wounds, we knew his fate had been met. My weapon and gear had taken the brunt of the impact, and I walked out almost completely unscathed, which left me a burning, with a burning question, why him and not me? I have spent many hours talking with chaplains and friends about the hate that dwells inside me toward a people group that honestly has no real understanding of the why either. On one recent instance, I found myself in tears with frustration and a deep, overwhelming feeling of pity towards the Afghan people who were fighting us. And that's when the questions finally made sense. The things that Jesus said about loving your enemy began to come alive inside of me. As I sat there that day, my compassion grew, and I began to understand why my wife does what she does for Christ. If not us, then who? Our journey is not complete, and I am far from being like my wife, but the one thing I know is Christ dwells in me, and that's a great place to start. I see why my wife loves them so much and why it is so important for me to support and love her and others, including my enemies, just like Christ loved the church. It's a daily battle, but in the end, the great commandment to love God and others and the great commission to reach others with the gospel of Christ is all that matters. Matt Cameron. And I thank Matt for sharing that with us. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear, as Jesus does too, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And Pastor Jim 
several years ago said something in a sermon that has always meant a lot to me, that these people are not the enemy, they are victims of the enemy. See, I could spend a whole lot of time, and I would love to get into that, about our spiritual enemies. The devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's our adversary. We have spiritual enemies within us. And this is a a common study that Christians do and should do on spiritual warfare. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to jump into one of those studies. We're given tools and weapons to fight those spiritual enemies. But our battle's not with flesh and blood, and so Jesus is after our hearts and wants us to follow him. I will say, on this topic of Veterans Day outreach weekend, just in two weeks, as was announced earlier, because we're called to be light into this military community, I have to imagine that everybody here knows a soldier, an officer, a a veteran, uh, who you can invite to come. Uh, Chaplain Leach, I've heard good things about him. We always do a, a very good job, and it's a big weekend for us, a lot of prayer, and it's relevant in our community. Um, there'll be a, an invite in the bulletin next week. There's stuff online that you can share and post. Do you try to do that? Try to invite? Let's just see what the Holy Spirit does with that. Verse 44, again, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. What's this prayer part all about? Why did he add that here? It's because when we pray for our enemies, we find it much easier to love them. In fact, have you ever done this? Have you ever obeyed this and prayed for someone you're angry with that has hurt you? Prayed for one of your enemies? And it works so well, all of a sudden it disarms you and you're not mad at them anymore. And it works so well that you say, I'm not going to do that again. I want to be mad at these people. But as soon as you pray for them, it's amazing how the Spirit changes us. And this is how relationships are stored. And this is how friends are one. It doesn't mean you're going to be friends with everybody. But this is how things are healed and restored and redeemed. Jesus is the Redeemer. And this is what he wants you to do. That's an important piece to pray for your enemies. That might be the first place to start, honestly. Obey Jesus on this. This pleases God our Father. This glorifies God. Pray for your enemies. Is there anyone in your life that you're angry with or hurt with right now that you would call your enemy? Pray for them. Maybe even do it right now where you're sitting. Jesus is moving you and me today beyond being patient to insult and not retaliating to injury. Here's where the crescendo is explained. The pinnacle, the furthest extent of Christianity realized in our lives. Last week's passage was about going the extra mile. It was about turning the cheek and and receiving the insult. Being the bigger person in that way. Those were generally passive commands, passive obedience. But now Jesus' message goes a step beyond not retaliating and climaxes in our final sermon of this series with the ultimate action, which is love your enemies. Let's look at the text where he tells us why. We've got to know the why before we actually do it. So verses 45 through 47, why love our enemies? First verse 45 Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Let's look at what this verse means. Why love our enemies? First, it is God-like. Jesus starts this verse saying, this is what the Father, this is what your Father in heaven would do. This is how God treats us. The Father shared his good things with us when we had no interest in him, no regard for him, when we were his enemies. He gave us his grace and he shared his love with us. This is what your father would do. So to be sons, daughters, children of God, this is what we do. That is a mark of our being a child of God. Second reason why love our enemies, this is a mark of maturity. Proving that we are growing to maturity in Christ and not just little children. God making it rain on the just and the unjust. He gives two little... Two explanations of that. This is what theologians call common grace. If you look around, I mean, it's raining here all, probably more than we need, actually. But rain in much of the world, on all the world, gives us food and beauty. It's needed. And it rains on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. In, in God's common grace, he shares his goodness and his love undiscriminately. He doesn't discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives common grace to all people. And this is what Jesus says for you to do with all people. Give your common grace and your common love to all people. To not discriminate whether they're in your clique. Whether they're your friend or your enemy. Whether they deserve it or not. It's a mark of maturity. Third, it is a testimony to others. This is what blows people's minds about Christians. And that's what we should be all about, living in such a way that follows Jesus and blows people's minds, really. How could they possibly treat someone so well? It's an act of love. Makes, us, makes it easy to win people for Christ. And four, it glorifies God. As Christians, our returning good for evil makes God look beautiful because you can't find that kind of beauty anywhere else in the world. It glorifies God. This is the heart of Jesus' command here to us. And in verses 46 and 47, Jesus gives us two illustrations of how this sets us apart from everyone else. And this is what he wants from us, to be holy, set apart, obedient, reflecting him to the world. All right, so verses 46 and 47, Jesus asks the obvious question, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And in there is an implication of reward too. That's the fifth reason. But if you love those who just, just who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So let's look at really the power of these illustrations here. Tax collectors were another of the most hated groups of people by the Jews. They were traitors who had sold themselves out to the Romans to extort money from their brothers. They were very hated. So... What reward is it to you if you just love the people in your own cliques, your cliques at church, your cliques at school, online, wherever, the, wherever your cliques may be, if you just love those people who love you back, don't the tax collectors do that? The most hated people? That doesn't set you apart at all. I just heard a Christian leadership podcast the other day. This was really interesting. Uh, in surveys, most Christians think that their churches are welcoming and friendly. Uh, but when you survey guests, uh, 
they don't think, you know, the numbers are not nearly so high. And that's because we all think our church is welcoming and friendly because we're very welcoming and friendly to our friends. <laughs> right? I'm welcoming and friendly, but not so much to guests. So hear it from the guest eyes. Now, Lake City is pretty welcoming and friendly across the board, but still, still a good challenge. If we only love other Christians, though, here's the point. We have every reason to be hated by the world. And Jesus wants more than that. With love, we prove Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and the source of love itself. Doesn't this make sense? To care for the needs in one's own circles is natural affection. To go beyond the bounds to our enemies is supernatural affection. It's another dimension of reality. And I'm going to use a Star Wars illustration. Those are always fun to use, right? All right, Jesus is not saying that we can do this on our own power or that this is easy. The Star Wars illustration helps us understand how radical this is. All right, you know, going to light speed, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker, we got to get away from the bad guys. Kick it into light speed. And what happens? Do they just go a little bit faster? No, I mean, the stars go by and they're zip right into an entirely different realm. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I in you and the Holy Spirit empowering you will take you to a place the natural person cannot go. This is supernatural. And our Lord calls us to do this. It is more than hard. It is impossible, ridiculous, unexplainable, and supernatural, which is exactly the kind of obedience that God wants from his followers. And it's exactly the kind of obedience Jesus has in mind when he gives the grand finale of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 48, the last text, the last verse of our sermon series where Jesus says, be perfect. On top of all this, this is how Jesus ends. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the crescendo is at its peak. Now this verse causes a lot of headaches because taken just by itself, it sounds like Jesus is setting a standard that we cannot possibly attain and that's discouraging and frustrating. That's just taken by itself. So let me clarify this. Make no mistake, perfection is utterly impossible. On this side of heaven, for sinful humans to achieve. This unattainable standard is exactly what the law's purpose was. It was to set an unattainable standard of perfection to demonstrate, Paul explains clearly in Romans, that was the function of the law, to demonstrate to you and me and all the humans in the world that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be perfect. So this word for perfect is used throughout the New Testament with a sense of maturing, growing, always towards perfection. That's our goal. So let me get this straight. A Christian is not someone who keeps the law and keeps the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. We can't do it. A Christian is somebody who knows he can't. And someone who knows he is saved based on Jesus' perfection. That's the basis of our salvation, but then shoots to obey and follow Jesus as perfectly as he can to honor him, to glorify him, and in exchange, give us the abundant life that Jesus promises us. And that's what happens when we do. 
Now, this series isn't over until we've done these next steps. I have two next steps for you today. Please don't consider this series to be over until you've done this. I'm not trying to belabor the series. I'm trying to get you to do this. All right, so here we go. Number one, I will examine how I succeed and where I fall short and need to grow in Jesus' examples of perfect living. And the things we've talked about this fall in happiness, what do you need to do? Look at those beatitudes. That was Jesus' secret of happiness, of anger. Who do you need to forgive so that you can move on with your life to abundant life, to get rid of that load, and so they can move on with theirs? Lust, that one's not going away anytime soon. Divorce, honesty, revenge, all the way to actively choosing to love your enemies. Where do you fall short and need to grow more in Jesus? Know that Jesus meets you there. And I will say this, we've gone to some tough places in our minds today. And when our church had the forgiveness series a few months ago, one thing that was taught that was very helpful and constructive is that the testimony of Scripture is that God gives us a window of grace. So if your life is devastated by somebody, he's not demanding you that in the next 10 seconds everything is good and you're friends again, okay? That's, I mean, we're being real here. And the Bible is real. There is a window of grace, but he wants your heart. And he gives us the vision of perfection and then says, you take one step at a time, my children. And I will meet you there. So we're growing, we're maturing, we're having abundant life. But let me back up even more in next step number two. We have to make sure that you're in the faith. I will examine whether Jesus' love is in my heart. Examine this, friends. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he stops what he's saying and says, wait, examine if you're really in the faith, if you really are a believer. And there's lots of ways to do that. You may, and this is, this is epidemic in a, in a Christian a nation with a Christian background. So many people have grown up in church and think that makes you a Christian, a Christ follower, a truly saved with a new heart. You've been born again, have a new life, have eternal life. And many people don't. You've got to give your life to Jesus Christ. So examine the faith to see if you are in the faith. And one of the fruits that you'll be able to determine that by is, do I have any desire to follow Jesus in these areas of anger and lust and and loving my enemies, is this something that I desired? Yes, I want to follow Jesus as hard as it is. Would you take the next step? Would you enjoy taking those with your brothers and sisters and your church family? And if not, if there's nothing there, the Holy Spirit may not be there. But today can be the day of your salvation if you trust him as your savior. He's already done all the rest of the work. You trust him and receive him and Jesus plants his love in your heart and you will find a whole new way of living. Let's pray now against our spiritual enemies, which deter us from that, and for our resolve to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this series. It really has been a special time in, in all of our lives, I have to imagine. We're following our master, our elder brother, our friend, our Lord Jesus, and winning in life as we do, not perfectly by any stretch, so we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, this prayer right now uh, could be a prayer, a call to salvation for some that are here. And I pray that they won't fight you against you anymore, but they'll, they'll join you and receive you today. And for the rest, 
prayer of exhortation just to follow Jesus. And I pray that we would obediently. And now, Lord, as we reflect on this and make our resolve and sing how he loves us, I pray that we will rejoice in the love that we have and think about how we can share that with even our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.